Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Actually, chapter 3, which we've missed out, sets the platform for chapter 4. So <laughs> that's quite a challenge. But let's read chapter... Uh, well, let me just tell you about chapter 3 in one minute. Okay? So chapter 3 is um, what the uh, writer to do. He's a brilliant writer. He's, uh, he's, uh, we don't know who he is. Modern scholarship said he's probably Apollos. That, that's where the bets are if you're a betting person, which probably doesn't go together with um, Christianity. But, but Paulus seems to, be on, seems to be the one in the running at the moment. And, um, and what he does, uh, this writer, we don't really know it is, he uses Old Testament examples to make his point. And in chapter 3, which we're not looking at this morning, he, he uses an example, a bad example, of the children of Israel the wilderness generation who come to um, what is called Kadesh Benir on the edge of the promised land. And if you know about um, that, that uh, Moses, the leader, he sends out 12 spies. And 10 come back with them, the majority come back with a bad res- report, saying there are giants in the land, you know, we can't do this, we should not go in. And the other two, which is Joshua and Caleb, they come back with uh, the minority report, but, but is the, 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 the God is with us, and we can take this land. And Israel, because of unbelief, because of cynicism, questioned whether God was alive, they believe the majority report, and they do not go in. So that's a bad example, and that's why chapter 4 says, therefore. So he's looking back at chapter 3, and he's saying, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Let's continue in chapter 4. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we, who have believed, enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared and on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. That's chapter 3. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by, fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living, sharp, active, sharper than 
any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, the end of the sermon, <coughs> if we get there, if the Lord doesn't return, so about the return of the Lord. Um, I've got a, a very sensitive illustration which I've been given permission to use. So you might say, if I didn't say that, John, why are you, you, why are you using that illustration? It is quite sensitive, as, as you will see. If we get that, I, I may not use it, but if I do, I've been given permission to, to, to use it. Um, I want to make three points from this passage, and I'll try and be as, as easy as possible, because as you just read that, really, it's a challenging book, isn't it, Hebrews? Midlife crisis, our eternal destiny, and number three, danger, real power, the word of God. Okay? Three points. Midlife crisis, our eternal destiny, danger, real power, the word of God. Midlife crisis. I don't know whether you've had one yet. The congregation looks far too young to have been there. But they say that such is happening now earlier in life because expectations on us happen to become now much more earlier. And I don't think advertising, celebrity culture, the now culture is helping us at all. I have an example of a midlife crisis when I was most of the, the average age of, of this. And here, my wife drops her head in hands and says, oh, no, John, please don't mention this again. But I am doing Wendy, so please stay with me. Don't drop your head. Um, <clears throat> many years ago, um, we, as some of you see, we live in a Victorian house, and we, we've always lived in Victorian houses. I'm looking forward to downsizing and getting to a warmer house uh, soon. But um, I, I was there, and Wendy had gone out fine dining with her fellow um, lady GPs, as she did uh, all the time. I'm left with the childcare <coughs> in the house. It's a, it's a cold, it's a wet night, it's dark, curtains are drawn, okay? And all of a sudden, I, I hear a knocking noise on the, the outside of the bay window. So, coward as I am, I, I go to the window, I open the, 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 the curtains, and I see a guy trying to get in through the window. I shut the curtains, I run to the front door, I put the panic alarm on, and for about uh, a few minutes, take it off, phone the police, dial 999, give a description of the guy, and then wait, and silence. So then I thought, I'll pluck up enough courage, I'll look at it again, and I open the curtain, and I see him again. And then I realize it's the reflection of myself <laughs> in the window. Then, a few, about 20 minutes later, I see a policeman in our driveway with a torch. And I thought, if he comes to the front door, he will nick me, because I've given me my own description, as well as the wasting of police time. What I did immediately is I went to the mirror, and I said emphatically to myself, John, this is what you look like. When Wendy came home, she wasn't surprised. <laughs> I, I do have a problem with facial recognition. <laughs> and it has got me into problems, certainly in a church context. I won't, will destroy the servant, so I won't go there. So I apologize if I don't recognize you. I don't recognize myself. 
there's a midlife crisis in this church, and I said midlife because they're, they're not novices. As Tom has said, and, and as Mike said last, last week, they, they're having a crisis of confidence, but when they came to Christ a number of years ago, it, they had real conviction. Some of them were put in prison. Uh, some of them lost their property. Others identified with those in prison. They, they, they were sold out for Jesus Christ. Nothing could stop them. But a few years down the line, when this guy's writing to them, they've lost confidence. And part of that is, has been said about the culture they're in, in the Roman culture, which the concept of shame and honor was very important. And they've been shamed. That's why shame is, 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 a, is a theme that comes out in Hebrews. But the other side is that they're not so sure, not so confident that the Lord can pull them through and who he has said what he, is, is he said he is. They're not too sure that he's sufficient. So they begin to break up even this small group. They're stop, stopping kind of meeting together. There's a midlife crisis, a loss of identity, and a real lack of confidence in Christ. And like me, they need to examine themselves carefully, to take a sober look and get back on track. You see, what chapter 4 is, 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 is saying, that what the Old Testament wilderness generation in chapter 3 did not enter into because of unbelief. God's promised rest, and it uses this term rest, and we'll amplify that to, to, to what it means. But it's still available. The opportunity to, to enter God's rest still stands. Therefore, verse 1, we must be careful not to fall short. Or the better translation is from the older translations in the King James, which the NIV doesn't pick up. We should fear. We should fear falling short. Be careful. And to fear in Hebrews has this kind of sense of, yes, fearing the Lord and becoming unfaithful in believing his promises. Hebrews is an uncomfortable book. But it's... it's only uncomfortable to get us back on track, to get this church, this small house group, back on track. And it's a track, hopefully the writer believes that it will, they'll get back onto in declaring that they'll have a glorious inheritance that awaits them. Because they've responded to the gospel of Jesus. And as the last two sermons have, have, have said, that they're, they're told, do not drift. The idea is, a, you know, a leaf on water that can move quite quickly or a boat that's not anchored. It can, can, before you know where you are, you're way down stream. It's easy to drift. Rather, he's saying, grasp what is important. That we are progressively moving on pilgrimage. We're on pilgrimage to a, an eternal destiny. And it states emphatically that this eternal destiny for God's people, this resting place, it's truly there and it stands. It's not a mythical place. It's more real, it's more relevant than the temporal concerns that we're caught up in, even in the 21st century. And it should start to occupy our minds. It's of another dimension, but it's of huge significance and importance. And it's now our daily actions that are all to do with Christ, that will indeed echo into eternity, to quote Maximus as he stands before his troops.
film Gladiator before they go into battle. Let what you do today echo into eternity. Well, let's just for a little while, let's just just look at this rest, and then we'll 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 go on to look at God's word. So very briefly. Let's look at our eternal destiny, this rest. But we, it says in verse 3, who have believed the gospel are entering a rest that the Old Testament generation could not. And we labor here on earth towards that end. And faith, it says, faith is that which oils the way forward for us. Faith makes Our trust in God, our trust in a big God, makes the gospel message effective. And what he does, and the book of Hebrews is quite unique in the New Testament to this. He uses loads of Old Testament scripture to substantiate that indeed God has spoken through his word. So when Hebrews is being written, most of the New Testament would not have been written, okay? But what these people are, they're Hebrews, they're of Jewish descent, so they would know and understand what we call the Old Testament scriptures. And he uses verses from that to substantiate his claims about Jesus Christ. And that they need to hear God's word. God's word is so important. So what he does in verse 3, he quotes Genesis 2, verse 2. It is a rest. This is what I'm going to talk about. It's a rest that God has put in place when he created the world. Verse 4 says, On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. This coming rest is what God has provided. He himself has entered into it. Verse 5 calls it my rest. The rest we are heading towards is God's rest. He's already there and he's waiting for his people to join him. It's not just word association that he's picking up. He's actually saying this is God's rest that he has provided for us that this wilderness generation could not enter into. And then in verse 7, to substantiate more what he's saying, he says, look, I'm going to use another Old Testament verse. Psalm 95 verse 7. Many years later, after the wilderness generation, King David, and we think it was King David, He wrote a psalm, Psalm 95, he wrote many psalms probably, and said, today, today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts, stating there was a new opportunity to enter God's rest. Seize this opportunity, King David said. But wait, these people, if they're acting like teenagers, they know the Old Testament Bible, And there could be an objection from them, which is in verse 8. So he starts to head that off. Some of them could be saying, we received this letter, but did not 40 years after the wilderness generation, Joshua, whose name is the same in Hebrew as Jesus, to confuse things even further, did he not take the Israelites into the promised land? Well, he says this, if that had happened... God would have not spoken through Psalm 95 some 300 years later after Joshua that this rest still stands and called it today. No, it remains available for the recipients of this letter and for us. 
And how are we to respond? If this rest still stands, how are we to respond? We are to long, long for its appearing, its coming. And that's where the Western church, the UK church, needs to get back on track. How much do we talk about the return of the Lord? Very little. Very little indeed. In chapter 9, verse 28, there's a lovely verse. And what Hebrews does is what most of New Testament scripture does. It doesn't say something, then leave it. It comes back to it. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The picture gets bigger. So let me just, just for a little while, just take you to chapter 9, verse 28, because it may be one of those chapters that's missed out. <laughs> chapter 9, and I think Sam would love this, is all about the tabernacle. Maybe you should come up and just, just talk about this, Sam. It's a description of the tabernacle and the Day of Atonement, which is, is the day when the high priest would once a year go into the inner sanctuary to the Holy of Holies. And he would, he would go in with the blood of, of this animal that's been sacrificed. And he would, he would sprinkle it over the mercy seat for the people and for himself to atone for sin. Okay? And verse 28 is what he's picking up the imagery is Israel. And what they would do is the whole, when the, the high priest is in the tabernacle, they would gather outside the tabernacle, or here, particularly in the illustration I'm going to use, outside the temple. Same thing. It was the, 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 the constructed in the same way. And, and this time, it, they would come round, and I've got this example of, of Simon the Just in, in 200 BC. He's the high priest, and he's gone in to atone for sin. And all of Israel were around the temple, and they're waiting, and there's, there's anxiety. Anxiety, because if he doesn't come out, and he's a dead man, but sin has not been atoned for, they're in trouble. And so there's, there's an, an anxiousness, a waiting for him. And it says there in these Jewish writings, how glorious he was when the people gathered around him as he came out of the inner sanctuary, like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full. And it goes off, this writing, into poet, tremendous poetic joy and celebration. And he picks that up, that same imagery, and says this, so as they rejoiced over their forgiveness and their cleansing and their renewal, now our high priest, and that's the term given to Jesus, he will arrive out of the heavenly tabernacle one final time, the second time, not to deal with sin because that was done at the cross, but to bring the fulfillment, the consummation of salvation. That's the picture. That's the glorious picture. And in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, Paul says that that day, that day that is coming, we are to long for its appearing. That was the New Testament witness of the early church. They had an expectation of the coming of the Lord. Our high priest is in heaven. There's a man in heaven, and he's coming again. And that day is fast approaching. We need to get ready for the rest of God to burst forth, to come. We are to live today in the light of his coming. He is here by his spirit 
but is absent in his resurrected body. That should cause within us a yearning and an aching for his return. For the return of the king. The king is coming. Paul said this when in Philippians, another favorite book of mine. It says this. Look, I, I can, I'm, I'm staying for the church because I've got all this responsibility on you, the Philippian church, and all the churches, got the pressure of all the churches. But it's far better for me to be with the Lord. And that's the better option. Now, he's not being fatalistic there. The mule may have a bad day, and it says, Paul's head, go. That's not what it's about. He means it from the bottom of his heart. He's an absolute Christ nutter, Paul. Christ to him is all consuming. And we need to become pregnant with expectation for the coming of the Lord. The witness of Revelation 22, the last book in the Bible, 22 verse 20, Jesus says, I am coming soon. And the response of the bride is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Well, just, let's just to look at the, a little bit further about this rest. What can we anticipate? What does it tell us, Hebrews, about the rest? What is it going to be like? Well, in verse 9, he calls it a Sabbath rest. It says a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. And Sabbath in the, in the scriptures and in Judaism should be and is and should be seen in terms of joy and festivity. Joy and festivity. So its nature is joy and festivity. There's a day coming that we're going to enter into where there's no going to be any more brokenness, any more disease, any more mental health issues, any more death, wholeness, completeness, new bodies is coming in this rest that is to come. It's shown and it's amplified in Hebrews chapter 12. So another way of defining this rest is unshakable kingdom. Everything's going to be shaken, and we're seeing everything shaken at the moment, aren't we? Well, everything's going to be shaken until all his unshakable kingdom remains. Another term for rest is heavenly city. Another one is Zion. And chapter 12 gives us a glimpse, a glimpse into eternity, a glimpse into this rest that is to come, signposts into the future. This place, heavenly Zion, the place where God dwells, is currently experiencing partying angels. Okay? Hebrews 12, 22. Multitudes of them, thousands upon thousands around the throne of God, dancing, partying, in adoration of the praise of the King of Kings. Sabbath rest is joy. Sabbath rest is celebration. In chapter 12, it talks about the first, the, the, the covenant being given by angels through Moses at Sinai. And their angels attended. They came there as servants. But in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the heavenly tabernacle, they're parting. The rest that we and these recipients of these letters will come into the true Sabbath rest is filled with thousands upon thousands of angels worshipping 
and adoring the Lord. And we need to get a glimpse of what is happening in the heavenlies. Post-Easter celebration of the ascended and risen Lord of all continues unabated. Glimpse it now. Glimpse it now. Get in party mode. God's presence is filled with celebration. Old Testament, including Sinai, was doom and gloom and judgment. But the heavenly Zion is dancing and celebration. And those angels, they're just ministering spirits sent to those to us who will inherit salvation. They are our butlers, basically. They're the warm-up gig. We are to join the Lord for the main event. Okay? We know what it's all about. We should start rehearsing now. Do a bit of a King David, maybe. Let joy begin to fill us more and more, especially, you know, as we're before the Lord and as we congregate before him, to get our lives right in the center of things around this eternal perspective. That we shall join in such worship for endless days. And what we see in part now will then be fully seen. We will respond fully in praise of the king. Do you know the first time I heard that Big Daddy Wee song? And he is a big daddy. I don't know if you've seen him on the YouTube. Oh, he's coming on the clouds. Something. I mean, I, there's all these other songs that we have, but that one, that one was prophetic. And something inside of me wanted to burst forth there. <laughs> I, I kind of, when I first heard that song, yes, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let that eternal perspective start to. Maybe you've not thought about it. Well, it's, it's major stuff, this. It's major eternal stuff. Start to pervade your thinking. Let it sink into our heart. Lord, give me that eternal perspective of what is to come. Let it change. Let it change what I do in terms of witness. Let it change what I do in terms of community. Let it impact me now down on earth for what is to come. Thirdly and lastly, danger, the word of God. It's a danger, it's not the Romans. The danger is... The word of God. You need to listen to the, the word of God, number three. Because what, what I said at the beginning is chapter one to four has stressed that God has spoken. God has spoken. And accountability of God's people is before the word of God. And he's shown us in the Hebrew scriptures that they're prophetic. They're fulfilled in the Son. So here we have in verse, 20, verse 12 to 13 the grand conclusion. Why do we need to listen? Because we cannot evade the word of God. It is living, it is active like God himself. And is absolutely effective. The fate of the wilderness generation is, is proof of what happened when people did not respond to the word of God. And verse 12 and 13 shows us that it penetrates the word of God. It exposes the deep recesses of the human person. And here it says the word of God, it's sharper, sharper than a two-edged sword. It is absolutely razor sharp, so much it penetrates, divides life and spirit, joints and marrows. It has laser-like penetration that it can divide the indivisible parts of the human being. And the discerning power is such, it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the seat of the, emo the emotions and the will. Let me give you an illustration. 
My dad is, is 91. <clears throat> my mum died five years ago. There's things I found out about my dad that I never knew. Never knew. Been in his house up to the age of 18. I never knew these things about him. They, my, my dad was a, a dementia carer for my mum for 10 years. They were a wonderful, devoted uh, people to the law. They're, they're from a Plymouth Brethren background. <clears throat> so I grew up in the Plymouth Brethren. And when he was in his... He had these... So when my mum told him, my mum died, and he couldn't sleep. And so he write, starts to write all these encounters he's had with the Lord over the years. And one of them, which substantiates this, is he was in his mid-30s, in hospital, post-op, very sore around his abdomen, and he's very depressed. And he sees above him a locker, that Bible I've got on the floor there, all battered Bible. And apparently it's my Bible, I never knew, I'd forgotten all about that. And he pushes it, pushes the Bible, and it falls down on him, open the right way up on his lap at Jonah chapter 2. And he begins to read Jonah chapter 2. And Jonah chapter 2 is all about Jonah's depression. As he, he goes in, he's in the belly of the whale. And so my dad finds himself spiraling down into depression. And then Jonah begins to turn to the Lord through chapter 2. And, and he starts goes into praise and adoration. And something lifted from my dad as that happened. And he just burst forth, and he was studying Romans at the time. And he just, like he said, it was like a machine gun. There is now no condemnation in Christ and all other things. And as he looks up, he has a vision of Jesus at the right-hand side of the bed. Now, that is incredible because he's put a brethren. They're very traditional, not wacky charismatics at all. Cessation of the gifts and all that. Maybe this is why he's never said anything. He has a vision of Jesus. And he said these words to him, it's not time, if I wanted to, I would have taken you, it's not your time. And he said his, his voice was like, it's indescribable, like a, a, a wonderful symphony. And then the Lord, through this vision, starts to go. And my dad gets out of bed to go home. <laughs> and he's gone. When he gets home, he put that Bible on his lap, opened it up in the same position, and he could not read the print. Just could not read the print. Fast forward 50 years. This is where I've got permission to, 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 um, to, to bring. And my mom is in the side ward, and she's end of life. 84. And so she's unconscious, she's breathing heavily, she's been given morphine, whatever. My, my dad and relative are in there in the room. All of a sudden, he says to my relative, get off the bed. The Lord is here. On the right hand side, and he turns to his wife and says, do not fear, the Lord's come to take you. And she stopped breathing and she died at that point. There's a verse in Psalms that I discovered a few years ago. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He's, he's with us all the way. It's 
powerful. The word of God is powerful. It can restore us. It can heal us. It's got life. The word of God made flesh himself, Jesus. Further, verse 13, there's no escape from his knowledge of you. He is all-seeing with his penetrating gaze. All things are known to him. They are laid naked and bare before him. Let me just lastly, to finish, give you a missional example of something that happened to me about the all-seeing God. I'd been doing some work on John Wimber, who uh, some of you maybe don't know, some do know, but he had a major impact in this country. He was from America. Now, he's not like the rest of North American preachers. He's from a Quaker background. But he focused on signs and wonders and healing and worship, made major contributions, and, and did, made a major contribution in the UK. And I, I, I had the privilege of doing some studies. So I was presenting this study to a group of people. And, and at the end, I was, I was full of faith for signs and wonders and other things to happen. Friday morning, we have a prayer meeting. We started Tuesday, Friday, half six till half seven. There's only about six people normally in the prayer meeting. I'm there on Friday morning. And I start to pray for the terrace houses which were next to this church building. Pray that God's power would come on them. Pray that God's glory, everything would come on these, <laughs> these terrace houses. And as you find in prayer, the team of people that were there started to get involved in it as well. And they were praying. Then we just felt the prayer is done, finished. Sunday morning, I'm in this large auditorium building. And I'm in the middle, and I'm, I'm probably involved in setup because there's very few people there. And this guy walks straight towards me. It's like on his mission. Straight towards me, comes right to my face, and says this. I live in those terrace houses next to the church building. He said, I'm a divorcee. I'm an accountant. <laughs> and I'm happy with my lot. And I don't know why I'm here, but a force brought me here this morning. I tell you, my jaw dropped. We have an awesome God who hears everything, who sees everything. I was a bit undone that morning. God is a God who is holy God. Hebrews says that he's a consuming fire. He's not changed. Jesus has made access wonderfully into his presence. But he's still the God who is holy, who is all-seeing. And his intention is to heal and restore these people. And you and I, if it's applicable, to get us back on track. Let's give ourselves to the one who has given everything for us. Amen.